We were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars, self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They are more like Lincoln and Socrates than Patton or Caesar. That is a quote from renowned author Jim Collins in his best-selling book, Good to Great, where he researched high-performing companies to see what made them so successful. One of the main reasons is that the very successful companies had what he called level five leadership. They were determined yet humble. What is humility and how can the Christian be humble and yet confident at the same time? That is the subject of our podcast here today. Welcome to the Hacker Podcast. My name is Greg Hackathorn. I hope you all are doing well. Today we are talking about the importance of humility in a leader, and this subject was sparked by a great book entitled Humilitas by John Dixon. I'll link to it in the show notes, but before we dive in, I want to encourage you to share this with a friend if you get something out of it and allow it to bless them too. Also, if you have time to rate and review the show where you listen to it, I would greatly appreciate that as it provides me feedback and it makes it easier for new listeners to discover the show. So thank you in advance for those of you who have been doing that and are going to do that. Now let's talk about humility or humilitas. Australians do not like sore losers. We have no time for those who, instead of accepting defeat, complain about the ref's bad call or how this was unfair or that worked against them. Okay, mate, swallow your pride and congratulate your opponent. But more than sore losers, Australians can't stand sore winners. Those who like to rub their opponent's nose in it, those who brag about how great they are or show up their opponent. It is one of the many reasons that the Australian public has fallen in love with Roger Federer for more than a decade, and every time he plays at the Australian Open, the fans come out and they adore him. The man knows how to lose with grace, but more importantly, he knows how to win with humility. Why is it that humility is so important to us and our heroes and leaders? Why do we find it something worth celebrating? When we discuss humility, the true meaning of the word is sometimes lost because we all assume everyone knows what it means. Here are just a few comments about the subject from some famous thinkers over the centuries. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. That was T.S. Eliot, the famous American poet. Confucius said that humility is the solid foundation of all virtues. Martin Luther, the German theologian who sparked the Reformation, he said this about humility. He said, True humility does not know that it is humble. If it did, it would be proud from the contemplation of so fine a virtue. Ted Turner, one of the wealthiest people in the world, said that if I only had a little humility, I'd be perfect. And then finally, I think this is the best quote about humility. It comes from C.S. Lewis. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I could have read dozens more quotes, each addressing different aspects of humility or common misconceptions of what it means to be humble. The word humility does not mean humiliation, 
even though both of these words are an offspring of a single Latin parent, humilitas. It also does not mean being a dormant for others, having low self-esteem, or suppressing your strengths and achievements. The Western meaning of humility is heavily influenced by the Hebrew-speaking Jews, the Latin-speaking Romans, and the Greeks, in particular the Greek-speaking Christians of the first century. In all three languages, the word used to describe humility means low, as in low to the ground. Used negatively, these terms mean to put low, that is, to be humiliated. But used positively, they mean to lower yourself or to be humble. So what is humility? I think the best way to describe it is it is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Simply put, a person who is humble has a willingness to hold power in service of others. They use their power, they use their influence to help others, to bless others. That's why the Apostle Paul told the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2 to regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also look out for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He said, don't view yourself as greater or more important than others. Don't only look after your own interests and your own desires, but consider others. Be considerate of their desires and what they want. What are their interests? Ultimately, Paul points the church to Jesus because he is the greatest example of true humility in the history of the world. You see, Paul highlights that Jesus came into this world with no reputation. Though he was the Son of God, he was born in a manger to a teenage mom and a carpenter. He wasn't born into royalty or into prestige, but into obscurity. Even though he could have been born into royalty, he was in fact the Son of God. Not only were his parents nobody special, but they were from Nazareth. That town did not have a good reputation insomuch that when Nathanael was told about a powerful man from Nazareth by his friend Philip, his response was to say, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus didn't even begin his ministry until he was 30 years old, even though he amazed the teachers of the temple in Jerusalem with his insight at the age of 12. He honored Jewish tradition that rabbis began their ministries at 30 years of age. In the meantime, he remained in subjection to his parents. This was not the way you would draft up the Messiah coming into this world, but this was the road that Jesus traveled. Why? He answers that question in Matthew chapter 20. The mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, approached Jesus and asked him if her sons could sit on his right and on his left when his kingdom was established. She was asking that they would have prominence and authority in his kingdom. When the other ten disciples heard about it, they became upset with the two brothers. But Jesus responded to the dispute in verse 25. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you, you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. He didn't come, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. 
the Lord of all glory thought it was more important to look after the needs of others than his own needs or his own desires. He used his power and his authority to restore sight to the blind. He used his power and his authority to cause the lame to walk, the lepers to be cleansed, the deaf ears to be opened. He raised the dead with his power and his authority, and he used it to preach the gospel to the poor. Amen. And he is still meeting the needs of his people today. That is why he instructed his disciples in Matthew 7 to ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. But did you know that Jesus concludes that portion of teaching in Matthew 7? We like to quote that portion, but he concludes it with one of the most famous lines in all of human history. Therefore, or for that reason, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. He finished that with the golden rule. So in essence, because God responds to the needs of his people, he's saying, if you ask, seek, knock, then you will receive, you will find, it will be open. And because God is willing to respond to the needs of his people, we should treat each other with humility. We should treat each other the same way we would want them to treat us, serving and blessing one another. True humility assumes the dignity or strength of the one possessing the virtue, which is why it should not be confused with having low self-esteem or being a doormat for others. In fact, it is impossible to be humble in the true sense of the word without a healthy sense of your own worth and abilities. A humble person is not a doormat. You are not being humble when you allow someone to walk all over you because you do not value yourself. A humble person knows their worth in the eyes of God and are secure in who they are. Because it is the humble person who is the one making the conscious decision. You're making that choice to lower yourself, to lower themselves in service of others. If you had low self-esteem, if you didn't view yourself rightly, then how would you be able to lower yourself and able to serve others? This was exemplified by Jesus when he went to the cross. Paul put it like this in Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You see, the cross was considered the lowest death possible. This was a form of execution used for lowly criminals and rebels. Yet this was the death that Jesus lowered himself to. Listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judge, judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. He humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself 
so that we may be able to overcome sin. Amen. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. You see, Jesus wasn't humiliated on the cross. Yes, the very nature of the cross was meant to humiliate those it crucified, and they tried their best to humiliate him that day. But Jesus wasn't humiliated. Why? Because he humbled himself. He had the power to come down from the cross, and yet he lowered himself and accomplished for us on Calvary what we could never accomplish by ourselves. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, he endured the cross because of the joy that was on the other side of the cross. On the other side of the cross, he saw you and he saw me. And so with humility, he endured the cross in order to purchase your salvation. Amen. And so that leads us to the tension we are discussing today. We have established that Jesus was the perfect example of humility, and he taught it to his disciples. Yet how do we marry that with the fact that he burst into the temple? He drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. He flipped over the tables of the money chambers. Uh, in fact, some renderings say that he uh, was coming at them with a whip. How do we explain what Jesus said in Luke 13 when the Pharisees told him to go away uh, because Herod, the ruler of the region, wanted to kill him? Jesus replied, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I will reach my goal. He, he said that the ruler of the region, Herod, was a fox. And he didn't care what he had to say because he was going to accomplish his own goal. How can we call Jesus humble when we hear this story found in Mark 9? Jesus was approached by a desperate father whose son was possessed and the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began to rolling around and foaming at the mouth. This happened frequently uh, to uh, this young man. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now listen to humble Jesus's response, this perfect picture of humility. His response is, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Jesus was almost being sarcastic. In the New Living Translation, it says, what do you mean, if I can? I can just picture Jesus looking at him like, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? You see, there is a tension that exists between displaying true humility, but also confidence in God. Yes, Jesus was humble and displayed that humility by lowering himself for the good of others. But he was also supremely confident in his authority over sin and death. It is possible for the Christian to be humble and yet confident because our confidence is not in our own abilities. Our confidence doesn't lie in our own strength or in our own name, but our confidence is rested securely in Christ. He is the one that has filled us with this spirit and given us authority. So we walk in his authority, and we walk in his power. The psalmist said it this way, some boast in chariots and some in horses. Some people are confident because of their good looks and their talent. Some people are confident because of the clothes that they wear or the car that they drive, the house that they live in. But the psalmist says, we will boast 
in the name of the Lord our God. We don't boast in these other things. We don't boast in possessions. We don't boast in cars and money and all these sorts of things. No, we boast, we extol, we support the name of the Lord our God. That is why Peter and John were able to confidently respond to the lame man's request for money in Acts chapter 3. They said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. They were humble enough to know they didn't have the answers, but they were confident enough to know that their God is able to do anything. Have you ever wondered why the name of Jesus is so powerful? There are a myriad of reasons that would cover a number of episodes, and I'm only going to cover one today, but if you want to know uh, more about that, about the name of Jesus, Bishop David K. Bernard wrote an amazing book entitled In the Name of Jesus that I would encourage you all to read if you can. But I'm just going to highlight this again in Philippians chapter 2. We've referenced it a few times today. It reads, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason. What's the reason? The reason is because he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because of his humility at the cross, The name of Jesus is exalted above every other name. Because he humbled himself, because he lowered himself on our behalf, going through death on a cross, his name has been exalted above every other name. That at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Isn't it incredible how closely an attitude of humility is connected to authority in Scripture, whether physical authority, you know, in this present world, or spiritual authority in the supernatural. I can point to a number of examples, and here's a few. King Saul, he was seen as humble, and that's why he was selected to be the first king of Israel. King David was a humble person. Abraham, Moses, the list could go on and on of people who were humble And then because of their humility, they were raised up to have authority in the physical world as a king or in the spiritual world as a leader, a prophet, and so on. It's little wonder that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we humbly submit to his will and his plan, there is no limit to what God can do in us and through us. Stephen Covey the author of the best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, wrote in a more recent book, he said, Humility truly is the mother of all virtues. It makes us a vessel, a vehicle, an agent, instead of the source. We are the vessel, and God is the source. Our job is merely to give what has been given to us, to be that thing that God can flow through, that God can use to humble ourselves and allow Him to use us and work through us. Who is ready to use their influence as a child of God 
for others to use their power that they've received through the infilling of the Holy Spirit to influence and to help other people, to be a leader and a disciple who is willing to give of themselves so that others can have an encounter with Jesus.